Hey, man. Well, what's going on? I gotta, I gotta tell you, we're finally into the whole let's try things out from Rod stage. Bone oh, yeah. broth. Let's revisit mm. it. I gotta tell everybody out there. I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm happy about this. One, my, my joint pain is down. I'm not popping as much, um, which was the reason I asked you about it more. And and mm-hmm. two, like recovery time, muscle soreness. And three, it's delicious. You didn't tell me that. I thought I, I don't know. I thought I put that in there. Like, I do sometimes say things are earthy, so you can't just assume that everything I, I mean, do. It, it tastes like soup. It does. It's soup. Without the it's filling. basically soup. Yeah. It is soup. I drink it. It's so this is like a, a beautiful stick. thing. This is like a shtick testimonial. Mm. Bone broth. I'm telling you. From the guy who doesn't actually listen to Rodney in all of these things, decided to listen to him in one of them. And it's worth it. That's all I got. I don't have to say anything else. That's all I got. This is the More In Common Podcast, ladies and gents. Welcome. I am Brenda Nova, a past guest and present listener, and I'm pleased to introduce today's show and thank you for tuning into a place that explores the fact that we have more in common than that which divides us by anchoring humanity in compassionate conversation. I want to invite you to check out moreincommonpod.com for other episodes, merch, blogs, good stuff. Of course, if you like what you hear, feel free to leave a like in your favorite podcast app. Leave a review if you'd like. It may be read on a future show. And please share with others. This is season two entitled Discovery. And today's episode is with Dr. Graham Bodie. Here, the gents will be discussing some emotionally charged topics, including listening. How many of us are truly competent listeners? I mean, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason, right? Hmm. Among other points, they'll be talking about the ABCs of listening, definition of listening, different patterns of listening, also being discussed political correctness and growing up privileged and defining what privilege is. So prepare to receive some great material for contemplation and self-evaluation. Per usual with more in common though, right? (laughs) Enjoy today's awesome conversation with Graham. So before we get into this episode, I got to tell you a little bit of something that Rodney got me into about seven months ago. One of those things, like he talks about these things all the time and I hardly ever try them. But this one in particular, Audible. Audible for audiobook listening. Like I tell you, I love reading books. I don't have a lot of time. I got two kids, two jobs. I got... uh, you know, a relationship that I try to invest in, but I really like to read books and there's a lot of information out there that helps us learn for our, for our business, learn for podcasting, learn for all of the things or just pleasure in reading. Mm-hmm. And it, it gives me that space to, to listen. So Rodney, thank you for, for putting me onto them because I'm excited to put other people onto it too. Yo man, glad I could help. I love it. I've been doing it for years. I highly recommend it. 
and I know you do it for for driving and yeah, I do it for driving in LA. And and honestly, you know, you get to get one book for free. You can you can send a book to a friend for free. You can return any book if you don't like it. I mean, that's lovely. And uh, you know, they got a, a trial period going on. You get a free free membership to start. So we're gonna put a link on our website. Go check it out. Uh, it's an affiliate link. We do get a little bit on the back end, so you're supporting us. We would really appreciate it. But our website, moreincommonpod.com. Check it out. Check it out. Audible. Particularly for people that look like me and have my privilege, I, I probably need to do a lot more proactive research on my end because I've grown up in uh, a sheltered and uh, privileged status um, that allows me not to think about my language choices. Uh, uh, gives me the privilege not to have to do that research. And then all of a sudden I'm requesting someone who's had to do all that kind of soul searching for their, their, their majority of their entire life. Now they have to relive the potential, you know, trauma or at least a mild upset that that brings, um, you know, depending on the individual and what their experiences are. So I think it's, it's incumbent on people like myself uh, to be more proactive than, than we typically are. Welcome back. Today we are with Graham Bodie. Um, Graham got his PhD at our alma mater, Purdue University. Boiler up. Um, <laughs> he studied interpersonal and health communications. He is now a professor at the University of Mississippi and has contributed to many research publications and recently provided edits to the source book of listening research, methodology, and measures. Um, he currently has a large-scale research study on how people listen to others who are experiencing some sort of personal problem. Uh, listening is his primary focus and his life's work, and he is a contributor to the Listen First project. And of course, he's a dad, a husband, and an all-around good dude, and we're thrilled to have Graham on the show. Welcome to the show, Graham. What's up, man? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so to, to start, start off, this is something that, um, I've been dying to ask you is, you know, given that listening is your thing, right. And, and you study it and you research it, how do you approach the conversation? And I'm sure you've heard it a hundred times. No way I listen to them. I don't care what they have to say. Um, when they disagree vehemently or, you know, disagree with the way that person thinks about something and ultimately basically shut themselves off from listening. Like, what do you say to that person if you're in that situation? Yeah. Uh, um, so I think I would first answer that by saying I, I don't get that a lot. Um, so when people ask me, you know, what do you do? Uh, my response is I teach people to listen and then I pause for a long time until the awkward sort of look on their face kind of goes away and they figure out how to respond to that. And, and usually the responses are, are something to the effect of, uh, oh, yeah, that's something that I don't do well or that's something that we need more of or, um, you know, oh, you're over at the university. How do you do that with young people? 
Um, and so usually the response is, is usually out of this state of confusion because I don't think most people, I think they expect you to say like, I teach or I'm a lawyer or whatever, you know, they, they give you a profession um, rather than be a little bit more specific. I, I do, you know, I, I think listening is one of those interesting things when you ask people if they're good at it, all these questionnaires are out there that try to assess your, you know, goodness or competency in listening. Um, people think they're above average. Just like if you ask every, if you ask a room full of a hundred people, you know, how many people are above average drivers, you know, 90 people raise their hands and you say, well, that's, that's totally yeah. that's statistically impossible. <laughs> right. right. Therefore you're yeah. average, uh, right? If everybody in here is above average. Exactly. Average, right? and, and, and so and listening yeah. is one of those things that, that people tend to think they do uh, better um, than, than other people think that they do. Um, so, you know, if I do get in a situation uh, where um, it's pretty obvious that, that someone isn't listening to either my opinion or somebody else's opinion, um, you know, I'll usually try to redirect the conversation focus on what they believe. Um, and so if, if they, you know, because in these situations, uh, that person is typically not expressed their belief, right? They're, they're simply responding to what they don't believe, right? So, okay, well, then what is it that you do believe? What is it that you do value? What is it that you do um, attest to? Uh, and so if you can get people in the affirmative and in the positive and thinking about something that they probably haven't thought about before, which is why they believe what they believe, because let's be honest, we, we don't we don't often reflect on why we do the things we do or believe the things that we believe. And I, th I think if you can get people to actually reflect on that, that, two things can happen. One, they either realize that they don't know why they believe what they believe, or it's so convoluted that they they end up kind of fumbling over themselves. Um, or or uh, the second thing that can happen is that the two people that think they disagree realize that they really have, as your podcast title suggests, more in common than they thought. Uh, and so you can start to unearth some of those similarities and establish common ground before you get into the differences. Those being the responses, people saying I'm not good at it or, or taking time to figure out uh, how to respond to you saying that and then stopping uh, what like. And a lot of people, I think, would say or you mentioned some people say, yeah, we need more of that. And at the same time, a lot of people think they're really good at it. Like what, what, what is it about, like, what have you found in your research that, is there anything that explains that phenomenon? Like what's going on in our brains? Why, why do we think we're good at it yet? We need more. Do we need, do we, are we basically, when somebody says that, are they basically saying, I need people to listen to me yeah. more? I or... think that's probably part of it. <laughs> um, you know, whether it's the fundamental attribution error where, you know, I'm good, but you know, everyone else has, Everybody has, has a problem. Um, that could be part of it. Um, or they're just, you know, um, when there's a communication malfunction, uh, when you misunderstand somebody, whose fault is it? Yeah, probably theirs, theirs right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, so <laughs> always. It's, it's always they need to be better or, you know, those people need to do better or everyone else needs to listen more. Um, but I think if people reflected on their own behavior and the way they act online and in person, they probably realize that they're also part of the problem, at least some of the time. Yeah, well, and I can say from personal work and experience, it's far more often me, especially in communication, like the, we were mentioning, you do the thing that you need yeah. the most improvement on. Like I'm trying, trying to figure out this communication thing. And it turns out my communication is not, is often not great. And, uh, you know, when I really dig into myself, it's like, ugh, like I didn't show up there in a way that even gave them a chance to be in a good 
in a good uh, conversation. So yeah, communication is always a dynamic. So whatever the problem is, whether it's misunderstanding or miscommunication is because of those two individuals in that context at that time. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, and if you don't have a recording of that conversation uh, to sit there and say, you said this, or I said that, like <laughs> you, you might as well, you know, forget about it because you don't actually know what happened. You know what you remember and our memories are really bad tape recorders. Really yeah. bad eyewitnesses. Yes. For sure. I want to double so down. There's three versions yes, of the truth. That's right. Yours, mine and the truth. Um, I want to double down on this response though. Um, the idea of redirecting the question back to the person yeah. who's re- reacting I think this is a really interesting. I'm curious what the what the data shows if if we talk data for a second on how frequently people ask questions in the nature of a dynamic. Because anecdotally, mm-hmm. from my experience, I was never really a great question asker, except you know that first one, like, "Hey, where are you from?" And then, "Oh, here is where I'm from." Until we started this, now I ask questions all the time, but realize no one ever asks questions. So I'm curious, like, is that common? Is that is that something that is a frequent problem in the breakdown of communication, especially when two people disagree on something? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we have hard data on, you know, uh, on average in the population, this is how often people ask questions versus do other things. Um, uh, you know, asking questions is one of those behaviors that are, is attributed to good listening. Um, that's attributed to, you know, competent communication. Uh, but, but along with, you know, um, sharing opinions or other relevant information, you know, as a follow up to something that I just said. Um, so I, there, there really isn't, there, there isn't data on a lot of the things that we kind of would like to know in terms of patterns of behavior, you know, in general. Um, why is that? Is that because it's hard to measure or there's just not a lot of behavior? Yeah. There's not a lot of behavioral research. So if you want to know like how often people do something, um, the most common method to answer that question is self-reported data. You ask people. And And, and so I I have no idea how many times I ask a question, but I, if you ask me that question on a survey, I'll probably answer it. Doesn't mean that it's accurate. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what I believe that I do is not the same as what I actually do. Um, and so we know, you know, mm. we know a lot about people's self-reported, uh, potential tendencies of communication. We know a lot less about people's actual communication behaviors or listening behaviors. Before we go further, what is listening? How do you define listening? Mm. How do you like, let's level set on what listening means to means for this conversation. Yeah, yeah, listening is a complex, uh, attitudinal behavioral and cognitive phenomenon. So when people use that term, they could be talking about uh, sort of an attitude or a willingness to listen, like she doesn't listen to me, or he, you know, he's a good listener, meaning like that, that, you know, this person has the predisposition to like want to do uh, what it is that I consider good listening. But then that also means that, that my definition incorporates some level of behavior. So what listeners do as they interact or as they're taking on that listening role. So uh, eye contact in this culture, you know, asking questions uh, and so forth, being quiet, not interrupting. Uh, and then the cognitive element is what psychologists and audiologists study, which is what goes on in the brain 
what goes on in the physiological elements, the uh, hearing, as well as attention and memory and comprehension and understanding and other um, cognitive uh, processes that happen that um, the only way that you know they're happening is if when, when someone responds to you. Um, so it's at least those three components, um, this, this attitudinal, behavioral, and cognitive, um, what I call the ABCs of listening. Um, you said something in there that, that alluded to my expectations of listening. So in the behavioral component of listening, like how do people break down their own? Like if I'm excited, if you have the expectation that everybody listens as well as you do, right. Or based on your knowledge and understanding, you're going to be really disappointed. <laughs> right. And then maybe get really upset when someone close to you isn't listening to your expectations. Right. Like how do we like individually break down that, that that uh, dissonance right yeah. when and, and like are there behaviors that we can engage for personal reflection to make sure that hey just because someone's not listening to me the way i want them to listen to me doesn't mean they're not listening to me it's, it's an interesting conundrum um so i do an activity um <laughs> where, where i have people fill out um uh this uh survey basically and it has a list of uh, up to 65, depending on how much time I have, up to 65 potential synonyms uh, for listening. Um, it's called the Listening Concepts Inventory. It was developed back in 2006 by uh, this team, uh, Marguerite Imhoff and uh, Laura Janusik developed this uh, scale. And it basically asks you to, to look at each of these synonym, potential synonyms and indicate the degree to which uh, each is uh, identical to or has nothing to do with listening. And, and based on that, you you kind of fall into these four pockets of, of your primary conceptualization or definition of listening. So you can you can view it as primarily an information processing activity uh, that involves organizing information and storing information and drawing and drawing conclusions. You can view it as a learning um, uh, something akin to learning. Um, you can view it as a relationship building activity. Uh, like bonding and connecting, uh, or you can, the fourth one is uh, as a critical activity. So sort of the, the idea that listening is uh, to, to figure out um, all of the inconsistencies uh, or, you know, you, well, you said this a minute ago, but then you said this other thing that's, you know, uh, to, like lawyers w would score highly on, on that. Um, and, and so one way to, one um, way to think about your, your question with the expectations is to acknowledge like everybody has at least potentially a different conceptualization of what it means to listen at this very abstract, like what's the purpose of listening? Right. Which, would that, you, would you equate that not to interrupt? No, would you equate that sim similar to like the five love languages? Like, is this an innate thing or is this an alert, a learned? Oh, thing? I think it's learned. I, I think very, very little in our lives is, is innate, doesn't have something to do with socialization. And, and so, mm. um, one of the, one of the other scales that I use is called the echo listening profile. And it, and it basically shows how you tend to process information. So it's a little bit different than a conceptualization of listening. That's more how you've been socialized to, to listen. Um, and what we find with that instrument, is that you know someone who primarily listens to and for emotional information um, 
listens differently, both cognitively and engages behaviorally differently than someone who views listening primarily as an analytical activity, um, for instance, or uh, someone that's uh, uh, more of um, what we call a reflective listener that's all in their head as opposed to a connective listener, which is all about other people. So I think these different ways in which either we conceptualize or view listening uh, or ways in which we tend to process information, um, those should correlate with ways in which we behave as listeners. And so if we have this expectation, like, like listening is this relational phenomenon pr whose primary purpose is to connect with other people and therefore, I'm listening to all of the information in this meeting or in this interaction with that intent in mind. In other words, I'm processing everything through the filter of how it impacts other people. And then you're coming at this as an analytical perspective where you're listening to and for facts and figures and data. There's going to be a mismatch in why aren't we connecting as much as I thought we would connect. And, and the analytical listeners are going to say, why aren't we getting to the meat of the of the issue where is the is you know in this situation um and then you throw in a third person that you know is a conceptualizing listener who just listens for all the possibilities right the brainstormer in the group right and you have a really interesting dynamic where no one feels listened to because everyone's coming at listening from a little bit different perspective you know and so how i deal with this in workshops is i use some sort of tool to unearth the fact that we all have these listening habits we all have these different ways of processing information that we all have these different conceptualizations of what it means to listen. And then once people realize uh, definitions are functional, in other words, it, they've helped us survive to this point, but they can be different from someone else's definition. Then we can get to the business like in an organization, you can come up with a definition of listening in that organization or in that work group um, and, and, a, and a realization that not everyone listens the same and so that's kind of the first step. It's like self-awareness is kind of that first step toward what we call listening intelligence um, is the ability to kind of um, grow and understand that there isn't one perfect way to listen. There are multiple ways uh, to listen, and you're never going to listen to your fullest potential with every single interaction partner that you're paired with. Side side question: Have you thought about writing the equivalent of five love languages to the, the five ways of listening? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got a I've got a proposal into um, a publisher for I don't know if it's exactly the five listening languages, but it's something similar to um, you know how to listen into relationships. In other words, what's the power yeah. of listening in, in interpersonal relationships? Oh my God. I think it would be amazing. And <clears throat> talk about, you know, it, and I think this is one of those things about making this type of academic knowledge accessible to a layman mm -hmm. who can easily translate that to their own lives and their own relationships. Yeah. Unfortunately, not everyone goes to the library and pulls the latest periodical off the shelf. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, not everybody, most people read fiction probably. No, I, right? I gave one um, of my first uh, journal articles to my, my father, who's a physician, very smart person. And, uh -huh. uh, and, and I asked him, you know, what'd you think? He said, well, I read the abstract and then I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but I just stopped reading. <laughs> we, we all have these different so languages, uh, these different ways of talking. And, and so academics tend to talk to themselves as opposed to talking to the general public. So, yeah, podcasts like this are great to, to get the message out broader. That's cool. Um, How did uh, Keith? I, I have a 
it's kind of a change in topic. No, I, I want you, I want I I have one last question on this line. Go ahead. Um, and then I I want to go where you're going. Um, right. So coming he, back. see, Graham, what he did there, he already knows where I'm going. <laughs> like 17 years right. of friendship, he's like in my head. It's ridiculous. Um, I like the, I like the pivot, but um, so. One of the things when you said at the beginning, most people think they're above average at listening, right? right? Do people think that they're... I am, so... <laughs> Do people generally think they're above average at listening because they listen to people with whom they agree more than mm. with whom they don't agree, therefore their representative sample is is uh, skewed? Yeah, maybe. I, I think hmm. um, that the explanation that tends to cycle the most with respect to figuring out why the you know the mean on those scales is higher you know above the midpoint is that listening is a socially desirable behavior and so scales that ask you to self-report like strongly agree or strongly disagree with certain characteristics of good or bad listening tend to correlate correlate pretty highly with measures of social desirability um, so yeah. anything that's socially desirable, people are going to want to say that they're good at and, and, you know, I'm good at all the, you know, the, the positive traits and I'm, and I'm, you know, de- definitely don't do any of the negative things. Um, but it would be an interesting, you know, that, that doesn't have to be the only explanation. It can be one among many. And so the other explanation could be, yeah, if I, if I simply surround myself, uh, you know, with people, you know, with whom I agree or with, with people who, you know, tell me how great I am and, and so forth, then I have this kind of inflated self-image potentially that, that wouldn't explain, however, in organizations where um, managers tend to over uh, to, to um, over accentuate their positive listening characteristics and their subordinates do not mm-hmm. share those. Um, so when you do 360 degree evaluations, the manager gets the feedback and is like, oh, all my, you know, I think I'm a 4.3, but my workers think I'm a 3.6. There's a mismatch, right, between what I believe I am and what they believe I am. And so, um, and I would imagine those conversations, there's a lot of agreement or at least potential of, uh, you know, fake agreement among those. So that, it wouldn't explain those kind of results. Um, but it's possible that some people believe that they're good listeners because of that reason. But I think it's more of a yeah. social desirability effect. Before we shift real quick. Can you list off just again the different types of listening and listeners? I just I want to capture that in a, a summary. Yeah, so um there there's several typologies out there. The one that I've been using the most lately um basically subdivides listening in terms of how people tend to process information uh based on um two primary dimensions. The first dimension runs from connective to reflective. And that's really, so connective listeners tend to listen to and for feelings and emotions. They tend to listen to and for the information and how it applies to other people. So to their team and, and to their, to their work group, for instance, whereas reflective listeners tends, tend to listen to and for how the information um, corresponds to their past experiences. So they're kind of in their own head. It's not a selfish listening, but it's, the, it's, I'm processing everything through my needs and wants and expectations versus other people's needs and wants and expectations. Uh, the other dimension runs from analytical to conceptual. So an analytical listener listens to and for facts, figures, data. They listen to what is, uh, whereas conceptual listeners listen for what is possible. So they listen to and for abstract information, 
kind of, you know, theories of the brainstormers of the group. Um, so again, that gives you kind of four types of listening, connective, reflective, analytical, and conceptual. I thank yeah. you. Yeah, that's good. I kind of have a question yeah. about the, I kind of have a question about the analytical. That tends to be where I fall, but then it's interesting because we kind of thinking about all this, all this conversation and it seems like data doesn't really drive difficult conversations forward. <laughs> Even when you have analytical thinkers involved, it seems like there's like this mismatch of maybe they're looking for it, but then there's still the emotional or cultural, whatever else is around it, that they are just taking the data and then assigning it to the thing that they want it to be. And I w have you seen anything like that or what? Like, how, how do you look at the analytical? Yeah, I mean, data doesn't group. Um, drive difficult conversations forward. I think that's what the research suggests uh, rather relationships drive difficult conversations for. So if you don't know the person, if you don't have a good idea of their principles and their priorities and their values, um, those conversations, you can spit out statistics all day long and the person will either ignore those statistics or they'll justify, you know, um, those statistics as your political agenda or your ideology or coming from a skewed source or you, you know, you name the, the, you know, fill in the blank in terms of how I can um, sweep those data under the rug, those statistics under the rug. Um, and so what, what we know from both sort of practice, um, uh, whether it's a, uh, a welcome table or a living room conversation or any of these other models that um, we have within our uh, partners within the Listen First Coalition, whether it's that practical and they experience what works is to drive relationships, but also in the psychological research, what you find is that relationships uh, drive people to actually come together and talk about issues and try to collaborate and come to common ground. Because otherwise, why, why should I uh, try to collaborate if I don't, mm -hmm. you know, actually have a relationship with this person? So I think your, your, your podcast is a good example of that. Pantsuit Politics with uh, Beth and Sarah is a good example of that. So there's a lot of good examples of uh, both anecdotally, but then that's backed by research that relationships come first, that relationships really matter. I think what does, I, I really do want to change topic at some point. That's it's a hard. Great, so hard. That's a so great much. point to change topic though, to go well, into like, I have one yeah. more question though. <laughs> okay. Like the, we just, we, we just interviewed Dolly Chug. Um, and she was saying that in her book says that, um, the information or the research on bias and, and, affecting the change on bias is is not overly overwhelmingly positive on the individual yeah. um from the individual standpoint but from an organizational standpoint there's a lot we can do from the changing yes. systems and doing things to take bias out by you know making uh application processes for for jobs anonymous by you know right. for example on a from a communication standpoint what is the research is like it, is it is it it's similar and different um but what like is there any more anything more positive to say about affecting communication and listening on an individual basis versus on a on a group or structural basis what do you see there yeah i mean the research is generally positive to to you know training programs and workshops um are tend to be tend to produce results but but of course you got a question like well, what was the outcome what were they measuring after that workshop? It was just people thinking that they're better listeners than, you know, just take that study and just shred it because it's, it's worthless. Like what were, but so there are some, 
there, there is some research that suggests that um, organizations that participate in some form uh, of, of listening training to boost employee sort of listening intelligence um, have better sales numbers, like objectively speaking, um, you know, there's some, so there's some financial benefits to, to organizations. Um, but, but I would say that there, there also are systems in place. So very similar to the bias stuff, like, yeah, there's so much you can do at the individual level because not everybody in the workshop really wants to be there or wants to change or thinks they need to change. So at the organizational level, um, there, there's some work coming out of Australia. There's a guy named Jim McNamara who does work on organizational listening. And he talks about building an organization on what he calls an architecture of listening And part of that architecture Mm -hmm. are the policies, the procedures, the infrastructure within the organization that allows uh, organizational members um, to to, um, you know, uh, be good listeners or or for that organization to be, you know, a listening organization as opposed to an organization that simply pushes out their message. Um, And so there there is there is a systemic element, particularly when you get to the organizational level where if you know, if employees, um, you know, don't feel like they have the power to get on social media and talk, quote unquote, on behalf of the organization, you know, then you're always going to have this kind of, you know, cynical consumer and rightly so that thinks that the organization is trying to protect something. You know, if your organization really was as great as it, you know, uh, says it is, you'd let your employees talk for you without having to go through their PR manager, Right. Um, right. and so there, there's power to, um, so, so I agree with that. There's an individual component, but also a pretty heavy systemic component. Mm. Cool. The, uh, so what got you into this? Like, what, why are you interested in listening? Yeah. Speaking of relationships, driving data, yeah. right? Like <laughs> who is this guy? Graham Bodie. Uh, so I went to, uh, grad school, um, at Auburn university, another sec school. Yeah. Uh, cause I'm at uh, Mississippi right now. So, and I was so, at LSU yeah. before that. So a lot of SEC schools. So I, I went to grad school because, um, uh, I didn't want to leave school. I wanted another football season. Um, uh, <laughs> so really my journey wasn't like, I'm going to, you know, it's not like I had an experience like when I was nine that made me, you know, say that I was going to be a listening scholar. It was the relationship that I had with a mentor, uh, by the name of Margaret Fitchhauser and, um, Margaret was, is a lifetime member of the International Listening Association. And so she invited me to do work on um, a couple of research projects that we ended up presenting at that conference. And I found that organization to be very relationally focused. In other words, people like smiled when you came in the room and there was a lot of hugging and, you know, there was a lot of like welcoming, particularly, which was, you know, important for me because I was brand new and kind of, you know, a nervous you know, grad student didn't know if I would be accepted and so forth. And so um, through that organization, realized that we thought we knew a lot about listening, but a lot of the things that we thought we knew weren't based in any kind of hard data. They were based in speculation or anecdotes or, you know, one-off, you know, classroom projects or, or something like that. So, um, so then when I went to grad school at Purdue, I went specifically because my mentor there, Brant Burleson, wanted uh, my expertise in human information processing and listening to apply to a research project that he was uh, working on, which was really his life's work on social support and supportive communication. Uh, So I came in to work specifically on a new theory that he was developing that asked the question, why are 
messages sometimes helpful and sometimes, you know, the same message, why is it sometimes helpful and sometimes not helpful? Are there mechanisms in our listening and our information processing that might explain some of the results in the literature that seem to be inconsistent? Um, and then when I got to LSU, I, you know, established a listening lab and I had students. So I was fortunate enough to have PhD students that wanted to study listening. And then right before I left LSU and came over to the University of Mississippi, I happened to meet Pierce. We jokingly say we met each other on this interesting dating app called Twitter. Uh, and, yeah, <laughs> yeah so that's it, what it is. And I was using, Tell me where I, I had been that. using this terminology, listen first, uh, when I went into organizations and I would say that, that I was going to create a listen first culture within the organization. That was kind of my, my shtick, my, my um, you know, value proposition. Uh, and so I was just intrigued that there was this whole organization called the Listen First um, Project. And so we started to, to work together uh, back about you know, a little bit over two years ago. And um, I just fell in love with the fact that my scholarship could be kind of translated to helping, um, you know, people and relationships and organizations and society as a whole. And so we could we could create this whole network and coalition behind kind of the power of listening and conversation. You've said relationally focused and relationships. Yeah. Well, you said it wasn't like some grand vision at nine no. that uh, drove you to l want to study listening, but relationships seem to be the underlying uh, theme there. Um, I take it that was an important component of, of growing up. Where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Mobile, um, Alabama. Um, and so, yeah, so part of Southern culture definitely is, is, uh, highly relationally focused. Um, you know, as a reflect back on, you know, certain mentors or, you know, people that may have probably at least subtly influenced why I study what I study. Um, there's, you know, my father, who's a very quiet individual, but when he speaks, you can tell he's been paying attention to everything, you know, up to that point. Uh, he's very reflective. He kind of has to mull it over. And then all of a sudden he speaks. Um, and uh, the other influence was a father-like figure. I worked at a gas station when I was in high school, pumping gas and changing oil. Um, there was a guy by the name of Lynn Dossett who was a linguist. You know, he wasn't trained as a linguist and he wasn't actually a PhD in linguistics, but he taught me the power of language. And so, for instance, someone would come in the gas station and ask for directions. And if I would say, you know, well, you go up Old Shell Road, and when you get to the to the uh, to the red light, you take a right, and the and the person would leave, and Lynn would look at me and say, "What if the light's green?" And it was just those little small kind of you know. At that point, I thought he was just being a smart aleck, but really, he was teaching me kind of the power of what you say and the precision and the potential for misunderstanding, even from something as small as saying red or green light or traffic light. Um, so, I mean, I've had time, you know, to reflect on all those kinds of things. And so definitely there were elements of my socialization that probably led me to do, and I was on the speech and debate team in high school, which led me to study communication studies as an undergraduate. I switched from being a chemical engineer major to being, you know, a, a communication major because I just realized after co-oping and you know, being in thermodynamics, like I didn't want to be the guy with the abacus and the slide rule and the chemical plant. You know, and that just wasn't me, and I really needed to do something different. And so I went back to my roots in speech and debate. And so, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of things, formative things, um, and, I, and all of them have been certain people or relationships. My speech and debate teacher in high school and then my public speaking teacher when I went back, 
you know, in college um, to, to communication. So you, you talk about uh, at the gas station, talking about linguistics, um, the power of what you say. What's your take on political correctness? <laughs> um, that's such a loaded term. Um, it's uh-huh. such a loaded term. What does it What does it mean to you? Uh, yeah, I think. Um, or does it Or does it mean I, anything I, to you? At both political correctness and um, offended seem lately mm-hmm. to be two terms that we don't know what they mean anymore. So uh-huh. someone says, "I'm offended because of X." Um, it could be a rightful offense. In other words, someone did something directly to me or my kind or insulted me because I belong to a certain group. And those things certainly are offensive, both to the individual uh, who is directed at and the larger social group that it, you know, is speaking to. But then other times people are offended, you know, because there's something, you know, um, some, some word or some phrase or some I don't know, um, that has nothing to do with me or it has nothing to do with putting down a group or it has nothing to do, you know, it's just, I don't like that. Or I don't, I don't want to think about that statistic or I don't want that to be true. Um, and, and so I think, you know, um, I think we're easily offended and I don't, I don't want to say, you know, here's this white cisgender male, like speaking from a place of privilege, no one can be offended. That's not where I'm going. I'm not suggesting that no one can be offended or there isn't any offensive or hateful or vulgar language. There certainly is. Uh, at the same time, I think a lot of things that people call offensive, um, we've got to think about another word to use to describe, you know, certain, uh, certain elements of what we, have become to call offensive. And I think that the same thing with, you know, political correctness, I think, I think the right has co-opted that term and made it so divisive. Uh, and at the same time, um, the, the left has been so careful with language. Um, so as to, you know, create, you know, trigger warnings, for instance, um, there's a pretty good literature where trigger warnings, they just don't work. Um, or they call what a what a I'm not familiar with this one. What is trigger? So what b- is before trigger I say something in a college classroom or in you know uh, some I'm in co- you know I teach college, so I'm not going to get into the high school. But when in, in a college class, we say you know before we get into a, a in a, a potentially you know divisive topic, I say I just want to warn everybody uh, we're about mm. you know I'm about to say something, um, and, and so if you if if this might offend you, you can leave. Or if this might offend you, you know, at some point, just tell me to stop talking about it, you know. And so we're, we're sheltering, potentially sheltering people from uh, a diverse set of, you know, if, if there's anywhere in the world that you ought to be able to talk about something that's potentially offensive in a way that can be, um, you know, logically broken down into its smallest components and torn apart and put back together again, it should be the college campus and the college atmosphere and the college classroom. Right. So the idea of um, I, I'm not a fan of of not inviting certain speakers to campus or disinviting certain speakers to campus unless there's some um, uh, existential or actual threat to people's lives. Um, I think um, the best way to defeat, you know, uh, some ideology that you wish were defeated is to listen to that ideology uh, as hurtful as it might be, so that you can understand where that ideology is coming from, right? Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, you, Rodney, or you, Keith, or me, Graham, should should listen to every hateful thing that's directed at us. 
right? I'm not saying that everybody ought to go talk to the neo-Nazi, that everybody ought to go talk to the fill-in-the-blank hateful person. But it does mean that there are people out there that are doing the work, like Christian Piccolini, who goes in and tries to remove people mm-hmm. from that hateful, uh, those hateful groups. There are people like him that should be doing that work. And there are groups like his mm-hmm. group and like other groups like his that should be doing that work. And that if, you know, uh, 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 America Forward or whatever one of these more uh, right-leaning groups on campus wants to bring, you know, uh, some quote-unquote offensive speaker to campus, um, rather than pro- uh, rather than sign petitions to get them removed from speaking on campus, why don't you uh, band together and put together programming that challenges that the ideology that you say offends you or that is offensive to you or that is offensive to groups of people, right? So I think there are things that we can do to combat hateful ideology that don't involve us disinviting speakers from campus uh, in the name of political correctness. And I think, you know, and, and so that, that I think on both kind of the, the left, which, which wants to sh- uh, often shelter and on the right with, which oftentimes wants to call everything, you know, that, um, uh, is, uh, looks like sheltering political correctness. I think there's, there's problems with both of those, uh, vantage points. And I'm sure I've said something that's mildly it's, offensive and probably going to be God, out of context. No. This is so but good, I'd correct, You know, whatever I need to correct, I, I'm, I'm I, more than open to correction, but that's just kind of my off of the top of my head thinking at this point. What, um, yeah, I mean, I, th- it, I think a lot of that, it, uh, at least in a, for me, well, I don't care, so I don't feel this, but I think a lot of people feel very much like they just can't yeah. speak because either way from either side they're gonna get it they're gonna get a oh you shouldn't have said that and then it just doesn't work out is the offensive thing do you think it's because we it's become a word that means nothing because we use it to we're imprecise with it and we just use it kind of just any anywhere and everywhere and it just then you hear it and it's like well what did you mean like or did you did you not like that or does that mean something else where you came from or like it's, yeah, it may not have been offensive. It, it may have been like, I didn't like that, or it, it challenges my belief, or, you know, it could be something other than being literally offensive or hateful. So I, I'd like to reserve offensive to those acts that might share some characteristics with hate speech or hateful speech um, that literally demean or demoralize or otherwise put a person or a group of people uh, in some sort of stereotypically negative, you know, position or characterization. Um, and I actually think some of the, some of the left's viewpoint on, I I don't agree with it on like political correctness. They, it's like a lot of the intent is to stop this speech from happening, which, and to your point, it, it doesn't actually change the ideology. It just forces it into corners and it's like, okay, well, we just won't talk out loud about it. It still exists. Like it's still there and it's still growing and fighting its people. It's just now you now you don't have a way to hear what they're actually saying and what they're actually about and then potentially actually have an effect on no, that's them. a great point and i think that's um i don't think Picciolini has said it in that exact way but i think some of the some of his arguments are very similar um he, you know he looks at um white supremacist language on the internet and it has changed it's evolved over time you know it, they no longer can say thankfully um, you know, they, they, they no longer put out certain hateful messages, 
But, mm-hmm. you know, the, the negative consequence, the unintended consequence of that is that um, what they say sounds potentially persuasive to certain people. It's easier yeah, to miss. It's, it's coded. coded. And so, um, so you, it's like saying white nationalists absolutely. versus. And so if you look at all these websites, yeah. they, they look appealing to certain groups of people, but, but the intent is still the same, which is to hate a certain group of, uh, of people that don't think and act and look like, right. The, those individuals. So yeah, I, yeah. There's this weird uh, people like to conflate. Um, it's, I've kind of Rodney and I have had this conversation probably months ago about political correctness, and I said to him, "Well, I like it." And my my position on it is has probably become more nuanced in that political correctness to me it's it, it's right in the name. It's it's for politicians mm. to balance and manage their language because they are representing a swath of difference right right? um so they have to do that doesn't mean you and i have to know all of the potentially offensive as you said words that could potentially offend any one individual i'm always not impossible yeah it's not possible and and this is where i think on the on the left it it breaks down and ultimately has the reaction on the right is if you say something that I believe to be offensive based on this supporting subgroup that it also offends that another person has no idea about, right? It's suddenly you vilify this other person rather than asking them, hey, what would you mean by mm-hmm. that? Right? Like, do you know about that? Um do you know what this word means and why it could potentially be a problem? Um, and ultimately just have a dialogue about it versus shut you down. I'm out. You're a bad person. Right. Go away. And that, that it's, it's this weird phenomenon that counters each other. Right. And then the other one's like, yes, yeah, well, screw you. You know, I didn't find it offensive. So go be sensitive. Go be a snowflake. Right. <laughs> And then it just creates this fight and it's, it's weird. Like it, it's just weird to me that, that we do that. And, and a lot of times, no the, the, you know, the individual that's claiming offense is coming at it from the perspective, like a linguistic perspective, like an, uh, uh, how has this term been used, particularly co-opted in the past and used mm-hmm. as a, ter- a negative term for some group of people. Whereas the person who's saying, you know, be quiet and, and go be a snowflake is just opening the dictionary and looking at, you know, definition number one and saying, this is this specific term that I'm, you know, trying. And so there's this connotation denotation yeah. argument. And so for instance, yeah. um, the word tribe or tribal. Um, so there is a, a children's book uh, that we uh, promoted uh, about a month or so back called two tribes. Um, and it's basically uh, what happens when these two groups of uh, people who um, are living kind of in the same place uh, have to solve a problem together, but can't listen across their differences and they struggle. And then how, how listening can um, be part of the solution for uh, reconciliation. And, and, you know, it, in this example, they had to cut the tree down and dam up a river. And so we were promoting this book and someone responded on Facebook and said, uh, the word tribe is, basically uh, should never be used uh, because it's an offensive word to Native Americans. And they gave this whole, uh, and, and so it, it simultaneously made me 
kind of, you know, the word tribal doesn't necessarily have to refer to a Native American tribe or, or an indigenous group of people, but it can. And so it had me, it made me question, should we ever use that term? How should we use that term? In what contexts mm-hmm. should that term be used? Should we go, you know, above and beyond to explain how we're using the term and why we think that term is the appropriate term and so forth? Can't change the name of the book at this point, um, you know, uh, but what can we do to use this uh, potential connotation of the word tribe and tribal uh, as a learning? And so we put it into some of the teaching materials that we're helping this author develop for um, elementary and middle school students to have them have a conversation about even the title of the book and whether the word True. tribe, in fact, is or can be. Like use it to yeah. grow. So we're using it cool. as, a, as a teaching tool. Um, and so that, that's how we've kind of come to some semblance of, of using that comment toward a positive without being offended ourselves or whatever you want to call it, that we were ourselves with, with someone calling out our use of the word tribe. I think it's a, which is even as you say that I'm like, well, I want do all indigenous Americans, do all native Americans feel the same way about the use of the word? And I would guess no, just from even the conversations about the Washington Redskins football team using yeah. that name, some tribes are completely against it and some don't care and some are for it. And then you have things like, um, was it university of Illinois? They were the, they're the fighting alliance. Some fighting alliance. Yeah. And they had the ward, the chief from the tribe come and do a war dance. And like, it was, they integrated like the culture of that tribe into the sport but other tribes and other people didn't like it, so they had to stop doing it. And it's like, well, no one group has one thought. And I, I was just in Vegas at this convention, and I was waiting in line for a taxi. And the guy in front of me is like, I can sum up the generation, two generations underneath mine with one word. I was just like, oh. <laughs> and I, he wasn't he wasn't talking yeah. to me, but I really wanted to butt in and say, do you think you could be summed up with one yeah. word? Like. How do you, how do you, how do you say that like what all black guys think this, all white guys think this, it's just all native Americans hate this. It's like, well, but they're, everybody's different. How do we, and it, and it seems like from your response, like how, like how you took that with the book, I'm sure people will have problems with that. However, it's trying to engage in a dialogue right. about it and then figure out what we do with it versus oh, we'll just change it and act like it didn't happen and hide it and we won't engage in the difficult part of talking yeah, about it. Yeah, I mean, it. imagine how many words we'd have yeah, to get rid of if, if, if every word that was offensive to at least you know two or more people had to be thrown out of the dictionary. We wouldn't be able to speak language. I mean, and it, it brings up, I think you bring up the, the a good point on the historical reference, mm-hmm. right? Or the difference between how history looks at something versus how it's used today. That's the, the most confusing and brilliance of language is it evolves and it, it, things change over time. Um, if you look at like the word picnic, right? It was recently brought to our, my attention that this has a word that was, um, developed or, I forget the root of it, but during slavery and, you know, it had to do with the N word, right? Like, should we not use picnic anymore because of its racially divisive, you know, uh, 
um, history, maybe not, but a good conversation to have, or, you know, in, in women's studies, like woman, right? Like, should we, you know, change the words to be less male centric? Um, or you take even on the other end of that spectrum fag, right? Like for how long was it used in multiple like different of connotations, or right? Cigarette butts, um, whatever. I, you know, I think that was probably the most commonly known definition of it that is no longer acceptable to be sure. used because of its connotation that's been leveraged. Right. And then all of this offense. And now I have to be so careful as not to say it versus like, Hey, if I used picnic and it offended you, let's have a conversation. Teach me about mm -hmm. it. And I get to decide, like, am I going to use this going forward or not based on my understanding of language? Right. Um, it's a fascinating. Which kind of goes back to, like, how was the context around it? Like, how was it being used? Yeah, I mean, at the same I, I'm time, always reminded at of. At the same time, oh. let's not um, place um, minority or marginalized groups as, like, the, uh, the, the teachers of us all, right? So, that, um, totally. you know, there, there's a balance between. I'm going to use my language, and then if I'm wrong, please teach me. And um, I, I need to do a little bit of, uh, you know, I need to be a well-informed individual um, in, mm. in addition to potentially slipping up and hoping somebody has the patience to uh, walk me through the problems with my language use, right? So particularly for people that look like me and have my privilege, I, I probably need to do a lot more proactive research on my end because I've grown up in uh, a sheltered and uh, privileged status um, that allows me not to think about my language choices, uh, uh, gives me the privilege not to have to do that research. And then all of a sudden I'm requesting someone who's had to do all that kind of soul searching for their, their, their majority of their entire life. Now they have to relive the potential, you know, trauma or at least uh, mild upset that that brings, um, you know, depending on the individual and what their experiences are. So I think it's, it's incumbent on people like myself uh, to be more proactive than, than we typically are. Totally. Agree you can't see Graham. Yeah. He's a, he's a, he's a handsome white gentleman. <laughs> uh, and, but, I, but you know what? I appreciate you saying that. I really do as, as the black dude in the conversation, because, <laughs> Like, A, it yeah. gets tiring having to explain things over and over, especially when I've lived it or I've seen it lived. or I. And then also, when it comes from me, it, it, can, it can often be taken as, oh, you're just right. a black dude or whatever, get over it. Um, so I, I appreciate you saying that. And as Dolly the, suggests, I mean, science shows that, you know, people that look like me and Graham are going to be far more persuasive um, in delivering the impact of these things, uh, as an explanation than you would be as the offended party. Speaking of words and things that people are all in a tizzy about, you mentioned sheltered and privileged, like what, in the thing, the term that comes to mind is white privilege. Um, I, I, well, there's a whole nother conversation there, but I want to ask, like, what does that mean for you? Like when you say I grew up sheltered and I had the privilege. Yeah, like, especially growing up in Mobile yeah. and having the perspective that you have. Like if we're thinking, you know, you know, unpacking a little bias here of what it would be for a white person to grow up in Mobile, right. Alabama, ultimately having a 
more broad perspective on things. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, privileges, um, both an individual and a systemic, you know, we're going back to that discussion that we had, um, you know, 10 or so minutes ago, it's, it's both individual and systemic, right? It's, it's me personally, I, I was privileged growing up, I grew up in a um, upper middle income household, uh, father who, uh, you know, is a physician, um, you know, uh, went to uh, a private school, uh, you know, I have I check all of the boxes in terms of an individual um, who all I pretty much had to do was like show up, you know, I mean, that's really to, to be honest with my upbringing, I, I pretty much had to show up um, and, and I was already on third base. Right. Um, I just didn't I just I just had to not screw it up. And I tried my best in certain, you know, between 14 and, and probably 20. I tried my best to <laughs> you gave it a good, to, gave to, it a good run. It up. Um, and still I was able, you know, to, to uh, not only survive, but thrive. Right. But but that doesn't mean that white privilege is limited to just those people who grew up like me. Um, it's it's the, the structure that's in place where a name like Jim or Tom or Frank is seen on a resume as having um, more potential to succeed in a job than a name um, like, um, you know, um, Thaddeus or Rodney or whatever, whatever the name is uh, from that, um, Chicago, or like, whatever, Ramon, right? Like, um, yeah. And so stereotypically white versus stereotypically uh, black names, right? And so as a mm. system, whiteness is a system, I think, and this is where, uh, again, people who are uh, offended by the word white privilege uh, and people who are um, trying to get that message across that there is this thing that exists called white privilege or white fragility or whatever the, the term it is that has white in front of it that you're trying to convince somebody of, that they're usually talking, they're usually talking across each other because the person that's being uh, offended or trying to defend themselves is not privileged, is talking about their own personal experience. Well, I grew up poor or I had to mm-hmm. pull myself up by my bootstraps or, right. It's that, well, you had laces uh, because of certain structures in our society, right. Land ownership and right. policy. You, you had, had boots. boots and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the, it, it wasn't that you could afford boots. It was society right. um, sort of almost gave you uh, the potential for boots once you could afford them. Uh, whereas other people don't even have the potential for boots, even if they can afford them. Um, so my, my wife head, is head also. Headwinds and tailwinds. I said headwinds and tailwinds. Yeah. So, so my wife is a yep. professor and she teaches this class called Careers. Um, and uh, it basically questions this notion of career. What is a career? How do I get one? Do I want hmm. one? What's the difference between a career and a job? And one of the activities that she does is a semester long project where students have to interview on multiple occasions, a person that has what they consider a career that that might, that they might want to go into several people interview their parents because it's convenient and so forth. And this one, uh, woman, um, black woman interviewed her father, who's a judge in Florida, I think. And through that interview, she realized, and she had never talked to her father about this, that her father not only was pulled over the, by the police, you know, as he was growing up, but while he was a judge in Florida, he got pulled over on on multiple occasions. Uh, and so it made sense to her in that moment. She had this epiphany where all of those conversations that he had with her that didn't involve specifics about 
making sure she was mindful where she was driving, how she was driving, how late she was driving, what kind of car she was driving. They all made sense to her. Keep the registration yeah. up to date. Like those, taillights, those I, don't, yeah. I don't ever remember having to have those conversations. Right. Because, yep. and, and so that's the kinds of systemic privilege, right. Um, that that's involved. And so, so to me, that's more of the problem than my own individual uh, privilege is the fact that simply by the fact that I uh, am white male cisgender uh, and have somewhat of a Southern accent because I live in the South, like, just because of those things, I'm already on third base and just don't have to screw up. And, and, and it's, it's, it's well, the difference between equality and equity. It's the difference between, you know, justice and social justice. It's the difference between kind of the terms that we could sit here and parse out all day long. Um, but the systemic, part of this is probably to me the most important and problematic part of it. A great example. Do you, you say you're on third base. Uh, sorry, I was going to ask third base. Um, yeah. Have slight Southern accent. I mean, it's not like the not overwhelming right? I've ever heard, but <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, bias probably happens when people hear your yeah. accent and they may assume, they may assume things about your intelligence level or what you think about things. So that, that like I, I think all of us have, like, to your point, privilege uh, individually, uh, whether it's the same or not. Like, we're, we're all over. But then we have things like how we sound and how people will perceive us that are going to. Or the play fact that I'm at a university, so I must be a bastion of the liberal establishment, right? I mean, so and mm-hmm. it, it goes, it goes all different ways, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, I I just looked at the clock and it's. Uh, I know. Yeah. Time flies. Um, Tempest Fugit. So I. An amazing conversation. Thank you. Absolutely, it was fun. I didn't uh, even realize it was already two thirty-five. Yeah. That's yeah. our our favorite compliment that we get often. But uh, Rodney has a final question okay. for you, Graham. Yeah, what we talked about a lot of goodness, a lot of it. You 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 often teach people on how to listen better. What kind of uh, what what tip or what thoughts would you leave people with as we as we look to wrap this up today? Yeah, I think, um, you know, you've got all these top 10 tips and, and we're guilty of this as well. Listen, first, we've put together kind of our top 10 tips. We did it um, mainly to kind of summarize what we saw in, in terms of the goodness of all these different lists that are out there. But I think first and foremost, what it means to listen first, um, it, it's, it's attitudinal. It starts within, you know, whether you want to call it within your mind or within your heart, but it really starts with you uh, having an attitude that the other person sitting across from me, whether it's virtual or in person, is a person full of complexity, full of nuance, full of um, uh, experiences that I don't have. Uh, So Bill Nye is is famous for saying um, everybody um, uh, that you meet has uh, the potential to to teach you something. Uh, I like to think that everybody is an expert of their own experiences and perspective. Uh, so we come to a conversation with that attitude that, that there's something here uh, that I can understand and potentially something here that I can validate and potentially something here that we can agree on. Um, you know, not that we have to agree, not that the purpose of every conversation is to meet in the middle or to compromise or to come to common ground. I I don't, I don't think every conversation has to have that purpose. It could simply just be to meet somebody interesting 
and and have a conversation that that that's unlike any other conversation that you've ever had. Uh, and so to be open mm-hmm. enough to to just have that attitude, what we call a listen first mindset, um, to um, to be with and to be present with, um, and to give, as Ben Mathis of Urban Confessional says, to give someone your attention rather than your intention. Right, it is mm-hmm. to be just fully engaged and present and in the moment, listening first to understand uh, rather than to respond. I think that if we have that mindset, then it's kind of like the, the research that shows that not a single, uh, not any single parenting book will make you a better parent. It's just wanting to have parenting books makes you a better parent. So it's being open mm-hmm. to the possibility that there are some ideas out there that can make you a better person, even if that better person means being more, uh, you know, informed about your own opinions and more, even more mm-hmm. convinced that your own opinions are right. Even if that's the result of the conversation, you were at least open to listening and hearing and understanding what that other person had to say.